our next speaker, I'll hop right to it, uh, is Matt MacArthur, Marine Maca Matt MacArthur, Marine Ecologist, not Macologist. Um, in a 20-year career in marine ecology, Antarctica's never been far from Matt MacArthur's mind. Oh, you're really testing me with these tongue twisters? Um, his fascination for the continent, developing as soon as he understood the concept of an ice land to our south, uh, influenced his career choices and resulted in his first invitation below the circle in 2004. Diving under the sea uh, at Ross Island didn't scratch an, ish, an itch so much as it induced a rash. And he continues to read, talk about, and try to get back to Antarctica at every opportunity. Now, I haven't met Matt, um, but I'd like you all to make him very welcome. Matt MacArthur, everybody. This microphone. Thank you. <clears throat> I was lucky to grow up surrounded by scientists, so picking a single influential person in my life is difficult. But I chose William Spears Bruce because he's largely been forgotten. I first learned about him when I started reading about Antarctica as a child, this Scotsman that headed south at the end of the 19th century. And I found his story really, really compelling. But the more I've learned about him over the years, reading books and now that I podcast about the history of Antarctic exploration, the more I've realised his story actually has a dark side to it, mostly because of a villain called Sir Clements Markham. And they're the two names that will keep recurring in my presentation. I'm told that when I speak about these people, the names just spill from me because in my mind, it's a, it's a web all of the stories about Antarctic exploration, the names keep recurring. People headed north, people headed south, and then they combined forces, and then they worked in opposition. So just remember, William Spears Bruce, the hero of our story, Sir Clements Markin, the villain. You can boo and hiss every time he comes up if you want. But seen from afar, from a position that none of us ever actually go, Antarctica's roughly circular. It's got some indentations, it's got some lumps and bumps. The Waddell Sea and the Ross Sea almost cut the continent in half, but it's, it's basically circular. The exception to this is the Antarctic Peninsula sticking up like an arm towards South America. And at the end of the... And into this information vacuum stepped young Scotsman William Spears Bruce. He was studying medicine at London College, going to follow his father into the practice when in 1887, he went to Edinburgh for a six-week six natural history course. And during that six weeks, he worked with John Murray and Hugh Robert Mill, people recently returned from the Challenger expedition, quite the name in marine science. It was sort of the, the birth of oceanography, that expedition. And he found himself so inspired that he actually transferred his studies to Edinburgh University so that he could stay close to the collections that he was helping curate and the mentors that he'd met during that six-week period. And oceanography started to take up more and more of his time, recommended him for a position as a naturalist on a ship heading south as part of a whaling expedition from Dundee. Four ships sailing to the Southern Ocean to see if they could turn a dollar whaling but they didn't find the right whales that they were looking for, the actual right whales that float when they're dead. 
So they turned their hand to sealing, and in the desperate rush to try and make the, make the expedition pay, Bruce didn't get many opportunities to carry out his role as a natural historian. He was sent ashore to club seals. He wasn't allowed to look at the charts to work out where he was. So those phenomena that he did witness and those articles that he did collect, he couldn't place geographically because fishers hold on to their information. To them, it's currency. They don't want other people to know where they found the seals. So he returned to Scotland frustrated as a scientist, but just inspired to return to the south. His word for it was ravenous for more experience of Antarctica. He put forward to the Royal Geographic Society that he should lead an expedition. But Sir Clements Markham, rising to prominence in that ex <laughs> rising to prominence, eventually becoming the president of the society, stymied any idea that that should go ahead. He had other plans. William Spears Bruce took a position as a meteorologist at Ben Nevis, the tallest mountain in the British Isles, where he learnt to make the meticulous meteorological observations, and he also learnt how to ski effectively and how to tow equipment around on sledges, both skills which would serve him well. And he also saw how to construct a building that would withstand blizzards, another skill that would serve him well later. Hugh Robert Mill again came to his aid, recommending him for a position on the Jackson-Harmsworth expedition in the Arctic. He joined them in their second year and plied his trade as a natural historian. But the key element of that expedition that led to his his further work in Antarctica, was that he met Fritjof Nansen, who was just coming out of the Arctic after 18 months. He and Helmar Johansson had left the ship the Fram in their attempt to drift across the North Pole. They skied as fast as they could. They couldn't reach the North Pole. So they just survived long enough to come out and happened to bump into the Jackson-Harmsworth expedition. And he shared a lot of his knowledge with William Spears Bruce. Nansen was quite the, quite the mentor to any number of Arctic and Antarctic explorers of that era. He returned to England. He headed north again with Prince Albert of Monaco, who was a, a really passionate amateur oceanographer and with his royal status could afford to fit out his own ship, the Princess Alice. And he took Spears aboard as natural historian and eventually his chief scientist for two trips to Spitsbergen where they discovered traces of coal and oil, but weren't able to capitalise on it. Back in England, there were plans afoot to send an expedition to Antarctica. And Bruce put his hand up for it. He said, I'd like to be in charge of the science. And so Clements Markham, he ignored the application for a month before sending back a terse one line. You should apply for assistant naturalist, which is quite the slight to the UK's foremost polar scientist of the time. Clements Markham wanted the expedition to be run on a naval footing, and his golden child was Robert Falcon Scott. Scott recognised his dearth of polar ex experience, and he actually sought out Bruce. He wanted Bruce on his team. But Bruce, having been slighted by Clements Markham, decided that he'd try and get a Scottish expedition up and running. And the Scots got well behind this. People like John Murray and the Coates brothers, textile magnates. They started bringing in the money that allowed him to buy an expedition ship, the Heckler, which he refitted and renamed the Scotia. And he crewed it with 27 crew and he scienced it with seven scientists and put his friend Robert Taylor from the Dundee Whaling Expedition in charge. 
and he sent a letter to Sir Clements Markham, because I like to think that he was a bit of a shit-stirrer, saying, by the way, I've got my own ship, would you like to coordinate efforts? And apparently Markham was just furious about this. How dare someone pinch funds that should have been going to his project? He bore a grudge. He never forgave Bruce. But Bruce's expedition sailed south at the same time as Scott and the Discovery. They left port on the 2nd of November, headed to the Falkland Islands, headed into the Waddell Sea, making it to 70 degrees south. They spent the winter on Laurie Island. The ship got frozen in. They didn't expect that. It was a particularly cold winter. And where Bruce had wanted to spend the winter with the ship running oceanographic survey in the South Atlantic, they were frozen into Laurie Bay. So he sent sledges out and did oceanography through the sea ice. The ship's engineer died, but that was from a pre-existing condition. Bruce looked after his men well. In the summer, when the ship broke out, they headed to Buenos Aires, where telegrams went back and forth across the Atlantic. Bruce sought extra funding from the Coates brothers to spend another winter in the south, and he offered his research station at Laurie Island, a house that he'd built along the lines of the weather station at Ben Nevis, called Ormond House, to the British government and no one wanted to know about it. The Navy didn't see any value in the place, the Foreign Office, the Colonial Office, no one, no one was interested, so he gave it to the Argentinians. Two years later, when the Southern Ocean whaling boom was on like a train, the British really rued their decision to not take that on board, but that's a story for another time. Heading back south, the ship continued its oceanographic voyage. They made it to 74 degrees south. They traversed the Waddell ice shelf they returned to the UK heroes in their native land and were pretty much written out of history by everyone else. Clements Markham's grudge against Bruce prevented him acknowledging, <coughs> acknowledging the science that he'd carried out, which was high quality stuff, particularly when you compare it to what his golden child had done with the Discovery Expedition, research that was pretty much pilloried by the Royal Society. Bruce was fiercely proud of Scotland without being parochial in the way that we think of patriots and nationalists now. He shared his information freely with other people. He put his crew first, his science second, eschewing any attempts to head to the pole or be first to, first to reach a particular point. And he wanted his crew recognised for the work that they'd done. He wanted them to receive the Polar Medal, that everyone aboard the Discovery and later everyone aboard the Terra Nova and the Morning. <coughs> Pardon me. Missions down to the Stokers. And Clements Markham blocked that at every step. Even after Clements Markham in a tragic even after Clements Markham's death in a tragic reading accident, which is another story for another time. <laughs> petitions to P uh, to MPs and members of the Royal Society could not get his crew the recognition that he wanted for them. And with the captain of the ship dying and the ship's engineer already dead, he grew increasingly concerned that these people weren't getting the recognition that they deserved. Bruce himself got gongs from different scientific bodies and from the Royal Geographic Society itself, but he wanted his crew to get the polar medal that they deserved, and they never did. And this harried his mind. 
it played on him. And he was a prickly character to begin with, but he just descended into madness, in part because of that antagonism from Sir Clements Markham, this petty grudge held by a man who already had a Franklin's dead arse and <laughs> smuggled chinchona trees out of Peru so that the East India Company could get on with oppressing the Indians without all that troublesome sweating and shaking that malaria causes. He, he had laurels and he just couldn't not kick downhill for some reason and William Spears Bruce ended his days in a mental asylum and died at the age of 53. As I said, he's largely been written out of history and that's part of what catches my attention about him. And that's why I've spoken about him, to try and rectify that. Thank you.